Second Timothy. Actually, we're going to start in Titus. Turn to Titus. And uh, Titus chapter 1. And um, so four chapters, 83 verses, uh, 1,666 words. Scary when you see that number. Um, um, It's written by Paul during his second imprisonment and final imprisonment, uh, about probably 66, 67 AD. You know, you find different people put different numbers down. We could say 67, um, but uh, probably 66, 67 AD. Um, I want to give you a little context so you kind of get what's happening here uh, in the book. There's a seat here. There's seats there. Um, Titus 1, where am I? I don't even know where I am. Titus 1, 5. So just give you a little context about what's happening in this book. Uh, he says in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, he says, uh, For this cause left I thee in Crete. So after writing 1 Timothy... Paul goes with Titus to Crete. That's a little island off of Greece. And he comes back to the mainland and he writes this letter to Titus because he's ordained him as an elder in Crete. Now, if you look at Titus 3.12, this is just a little context. Titus 3.12, he says, I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. So Paul is going to make his way to Nicopolis, which is in that area we call Greece, Western Greece, uh, where he intended to winter. And then if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you flip to the left a little bit, and look at verse 20, he says, Erastus abode at Miletum, but Trophimus have I left, I'm sorry, Erastus abode at Corinth, Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. So Paul's going to Nicopolis, Trophimus is left sick at Miletum, and Erastus is left at Corinth. Just want to add this in. Clearly, Paul has lost the ability to heal, right? Because he can't heal this guy. He had to leave him sick somewhere. So when that door shut on the nation of Israel, the sign gifts of healing have clearly faded away. And if you look at verse 13 now, we're going to do a little safe speculation now. 13, he says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus." When thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. So Paul is probably arrested suddenly in Troas in the home of Carpus. And the arrest seems to have been so sudden that Paul didn't even have a chance to gather his things. So he's saying, hey, Timothy, when you come, bring the stuff that I had in Carpus's home. Because clearly he was seized upon, it seems, that he couldn't even gather his parchments, his cloak. And so he's writing to Timothy. And this second imprisonment is very different from his first imprisonment. Because he was in prison twice, right? His first imprisonment, that's over in Acts, 8, Acts 28, Paul's in a hired house. Now he's closely confined. In his first arrest, it seems like he was accessible to all. People were coming and going to see him. Now, he's pretty hard to find. Look at chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. And look at verse 16. Look at 2 Timothy 1, uh, verse 16. 
The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. So it doesn't seem like he was very accessible. It looks like Onesiphorus had to work to find Paul. In his first imprisonment, he had a large circle of friends. Now, go to chapter 4. Look at verse 10. Now he's alone. Chapter, chapter 4, verse 10. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry, and Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. So Paul seems like he's alone. And in the first imprisonment, it seemed like he was hoping for a speedy liberation. Now, verse 6, he's expecting to die. So his second imprisonment is, is a real different ball game. And uh, look at verse 16 of chapter 4. He says, <clears throat> At my first answer, no man stood with me. But all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. It seems Paul might have even appeared before Nero already. And now he's expecting to appear again in the coming winter. So in verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, he's urging Timothy, come with Mark and bring me those things that I left behind. Verse 9, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Verse 11, uh, bring, you know, bring Mark with thee. Uh, verse 13, the cloak that I left, uh, bring with thee. And the books, but especially the parchments. Verse 21, do thy diligence to come before winter. So he knows he's going to see and stand in front of those people again and give another answer. So he's telling them, come on, come before that happens. But he's uncertain of his arrival. So what does Paul do in this letter? He writes his last warnings and encouragement to Timothy. Key word of the book. Oh, I want to say this first. The last letter ever written by Paul is very personal. He mentions 23 individuals in this book. We'll talk about some of those later. And the key word is ashamed. It appears four times. Look at, verse, look at chapter 1. Look at verse 8. There's good, just good lessons in here. Chapter 1, verse 8. It's always important to listen to the last words of someone. You know, you ever read the last words of people? I do. You like famous people? What's the last thing they said? You know, it's just very interesting to see the last thing people said. Um, it's just, just very telling. And these are the last words of Paul. In his last words, and, and he's saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed. 1.8, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. Number one, don't be ashamed of the Lord. That's, that's, that's good preaching. Verse number 12, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Number two, don't ever be ashamed of your hope. The Bible says not to be ashamed of your hope. Romans 5, Psalm 119, he says, let me not be ashamed of my hope. Verse 16, the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Don't be ashamed of God's suffering servants. When God's people are taking it on the chin, don't be ashamed of them. Don't distance yourself from them. Onesiphorus didn't. And chapter 215, 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you study God's word, God's way, you won't be ashamed. 
at the judgment seat of Christ. A fourfold mention and one is very different. 2 Timothy 2.15 is very different. Key verse to me is 2 Timothy 2.3. That to me is the key verse. Uh, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Right? 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy he urges Timothy about keeping your doctrine straight. In 2 Timothy, he urges him, keep your life straight. In 1 Timothy, he says, guard your doctrine. 2 Timothy, he says, guard your testimony. 1 Timothy says, ammunition ready? Get ready? 2 Timothy, it's all forward march. Onward march. Keep going. And uh, what's the key message? It's right there on your sheet. Loyalty to the Lord. Loyalty to His truth in view of persecution and apostasy. That's the message we need in the last days. Hold the line. Hold the line. If anybody from Staten Island remembers the uh, 40th anniversary many years ago, Bob Alexander came to Staten Island and he preached the message, hold the line. Fantastic message. Made me want to get saved all over again and jump through the ceiling. You know, just, and I remember him screaming about, hold the line, hold the line. That's, that's the message. Hold the line. Don't give up. Don't quit. Because everybody else is quitting. Uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as our example. Because he's the example God's soldiers are supposed to follow. So because the man of God is supposed to be a good soldier, the breakdown of the book is very, very simple. Chapter 1, endure in the camp. He talks about the home. Chapter 2, endure in the field. Chapter 3, endure in the fight. And chapter 4, endure even unto death. So let's get into some pictures and some truths from this book. Let's go to chapter 1, and let's talk about what's in chapter 1. Chapter 1, I want you to see it this way. If this is Paul's last battlefield notes to Timothy, in chapter 1, Paul is giving his remedy for the perilous times that are up ahead. And chapter 1 contains everything the man of God is going to need for what's coming. You want to see it? There's about seven or eight things in chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Number one, the man of God needs the promise of life. That's the first thing you need for perilous times. You build a man with the Bible. You don't build him up by just, you know, Ra rah, rah, or just getting all into his emotion. You build people up with the Bible. The Bible says it's able to build you up and to strengthen you. So the first thing the man of God needs is the Bible. If you're going to survive perilous times, and if you pastor are going to help build other people up, get them into the promise of life. Get them into something God said that you could trust. That's number one. Number two, verse three. I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience. They're all going to be P, by the way. The second thing is you need a pure conscience. You need the right heart attitude. You need the right motivation. You've got to keep your conscience clear that you're doing things on the up and up, right? The right attitude. Right in the rest of that verse, number three, that without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Third thing you're going to need is you're going to need prayer. You're going to need to pray, and you're going to need some people to pray for you. <laughs> if you don't pray for me, I'm going to collapse right? Uh, if you don't pray for each other, this work will collapse. So we need to pray. That's number three. What am I up to? Four. Verse five. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. 
You know what you need? You need a persuaded mind. You need real faith in perilous times. You need faith that's legit, faith that'll stand the test. Because when you go up against perilous times, you need some real faith. He says, hey, Timothy, you got some real faith in there, Timothy. That's good. Hey, anybody got some real faith? Oh, we got real faith. Real faith is not on Sunday and Thursday. Real faith is on Saturday morning. Real faith is in the hospital. Real faith is at the funeral parlor. Real faith is when the bad news comes down the pike. Real faith is when everybody's making fun of you at the dinner table. That's when real faith is needed. Out there. In here, we all look good. You guys look great. But we all, we all look good in here. Out there is where you need real faith, where the rubber meets the proverbial road. What am I up to? Six? Five? Verse seven. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You need power from God. You need something from God because the world and the enemy just wants to scare you into silence. Just scare you into your shell. Just scare you into oblivion. Just scare you into quitting. God says, I didn't tell you to do that. I gave you power. I gave you love. I gave you a sound mind like a maniac of Gadara. I gave him a sound mind, right? I want to give you that sound mind. So we need that power from God. Number six, Verse 8. I don't have numbers. That's why I'm an English teacher. Verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But watch it now. You'll see the P word. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You need to be a partaker of afflictions. You know what you need to do, Christians, that I don't like preaching any more than you like hearing? You need to struggle. You need to struggle. We don't like that. We want it to be easy, but we need to struggle. You know, uh, the big problem now in education is artificial intelligence, right? I can't devise an essay question that a kid, if he knows how to speak to the AI, can't just generate a response. They're teaching classes. The guy got saved? Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. 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 That's an answered prayer. Praise the Lord. We're praying for that, brother. Amen. Um, there is no question that I could pose. And I'm catching people now doing, you know, writing their essays via AI all the time. There's nothing I could say to de-incentivize AI. Because it's like, oh, I got to write your stupid essay. Or I could just go on Discord all night and play, you know, run my squads. But, you know, I, I, it's very hard to that. So I spoke to the kids this week because I started a new semester. And I said, listen, I'm not going to catch all your AI stuff. I'm not even going to try but the problem I, that, that, that with the AI is this. If you're always giving this machine to do your struggle, you're never going to grow and form the right way. And I say, you know what you're going to be like? And they're all like looking at me like this. You're going to be like those blobs at the end of the movie Wally, right. who like couldn't even like do anything without a machine doing it for them. And I think one person might have been paying attention. Somebody else was on the AI, you know, trying to feel something. But I think that's, you know, Frederick Douglass uh, said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. That's a pretty good quote. I share that with my students. And as Christians, the lesson is clear. There's got to be some struggle. It's got to be hard. It's got to be some difficulty. Must I be carried uh, to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others uh, sought to win the prize or send sailed through bloody seas? Right? We've got to struggle a little bit. All growth requires struggle. Growing pains as a couple you got to struggle, right? Mommy and daddy can't comfort you all the time. And, you know, as a Christian, you got to struggle. As a young person, you got to struggle. Guess what? You're not going to have a lot of money in the beginning. 
You're going to have to struggle, have to learn how to trust God. If it's always somebody else being your surrogate savior, you'll never grow the right way. As a Christian, if I'm always your surrogate savior, you're never going to grow the right way. In the beginning, we hold your hand. But eventually, you've got to learn how to feed yourself and stand a little bit and get into that Bible by yourself and search and plead and reach and reach out into the darkness and say, God, are you there? Because nobody else can be there for you but God. You'll have to learn to just hang your helpless soul on Him. And it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be very uncomfortable to sit there when your healthy son has been given a cancer diagnosis or a brother dies or a father passes away or something happens in your family that turns everything upside down. None of us want that. But God is just saying, look, I can get you through this. It's a struggle, but it's a good fight. It's a fight of faith. And if you'll just keep struggling to trust me, you'll grow those fibers and that muscle memory to be able to reach out and trust me. But he says, hey, Timothy, don't run from the struggle. Don't hide in your closet and cry in your beer. Be thou partaker of the afflictions. Because what did David say? It is good for me that I've been afflicted. I don't like that verse. But I don't mean your stupidity. Your stupidity getting you into trouble, that's different. I mean, you're doing the best you can and you're still taking it on the chin. That's God putting a little struggle in your life to let you grow. Right, I got all my gym, my gym rats here, right? The gym rats know if you just sit there and keep doing the same weight, and by the fourth week of doing the same weight, you're feeling no reason. Oh, I just got all my reps in. You're not growing. You got to put some more weight on. It's got to get harder if you're going to grow and get bigger. Right, Christian? All right, let's keep going. Uh, verse number nine. All right, what am I up to? Seven? Yeah. Thank you. Verse nine. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. You need purpose. We got people without purpose out there, man. They don't know what their purpose is. You want to make it through perilous times? You need some purpose. You need an eternal purpose. Notice the purpose is predestinated, not the person. The purpose was given us. Not like God picked you on the eternal lottery machine. He picked your name, and that's why you got saved. No, that's not it. Your purpose was predestinated. If you get saved, God gave you a purpose in Christ Jesus before the world began. In verse number 16, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Anesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. You know what you need finally? You need perspective. Because brethren, the judgment seat of Christ is no joke. Onesiphorus got his name in the Bible for seeking out Paul. And God put him in the Bible. And God said, and Paul said, when, when the judgment seat of Christ happens in that day, God have mercy on Onesiphorus. You'd think, oh man, Onesiphorus, he's going to have his name written on a banner somewhere. Paul says, have mercy on him, Lord. I'm in deep trouble. I never got my name in the Bible. I'm never getting my name in the Bible. I haven't done the things Onesiphorus did. I need a lot of mercy. You need perspective that this judgment seat of Christ that's coming is a sobering event when the eyes of fire of Jesus Christ will inspect all of your works. It should sober you up as a Christian. Not because you're afraid of going to hell. You're afraid of disappointing your Savior. You're afraid of not getting the reward reserved in heaven for you. So those are eight things, I guess, that'll give you a remedy for perilous times. Let's go to chapter 2. We go with chapter 1? All right, chapter 2 gives us three pictures the man of God is supposed to be. 
Look at verses 3 and 4. I'll show you the first picture. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. First thing you got to see yourself as, you got to see yourself as a soldier. The man of God is supposed to be a soldier. What is a soldier supposed to do? Endure hardness. Right? I know we got some soldiers in here. And you got to endure some hardness. Uh, sleeping on a lousy bed. Getting up at crazy hours. Taking a drill instructor. Screaming in your face with the spits going down your throat. And you can't flinch. You can't move. I get it. But that's not the hardness he's talking about for a pastor. That's not the hardness he's even talking about you. You know what the hardness is? The hardness he'd have to deal with is the hardness of people's hearts. That's the hardness that, a, uh, that a, a servant of God has to deal with, right? The tough sleeping conditions, the bad rations, that's not the hardest thing. The hardest thing to do is to pour your guts into somebody's life, have them look you in the eye, and know they're not going to do a thing with what you said from the Bible. That's hard. That's like a punch in the gut. Ugh. To see people that you've cried over, labored over, maybe discipled, done all this stuff to, and they just give you the royal Bronx cheer and just walk on down the road, that's hard. That's discouraging. That's what the man of God, the servant of God, has to endure. Jesus Christ is in the synagogue, and it says Jesus Christ was grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. I'll just flip you over to Hebrews for a second. So many times the Bible links hardness to the heart. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verse number 7. That heart, man. Out of it come the issues of life. Got to guard that heart. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Hebrews chapter 3. Bless you. Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear His voice, Harden not your hearts. As in the provocation, jump down to verse uh, 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know what's going to be hard if you decide to serve God? You're going to have to deal with people that just don't care. They just don't care. You're crying, you're pleading, you're sharing Bible verses. I don't care. The Sicilian in me wants to make a few gestures, but I won't do it. But that's kind of what they're going to give you. They're just giving you, they don't care. It's not even they hate you. They just don't care. You know, the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. They're just going to be apathetic like a rock. You're going to plead, you're going to preach your guts out, you're going to share those verses, you're going to do all this stuff. You know what? They're going to be like a block of ice. It's like you threw pebbles at a brick wall and nothing stuck. Uh, nothing uh, stuck. And I just made up a word. Nothing, uh, nothing stuck. And you just, that's the hardness you have to deal with. That discourages you more than lousy rations in a tough bed. That's discouraging. So you've got to endure that. Go back to 2 Timothy. Here's the second thing you've got to be. You're a soldier first. That's important that that's first. And here's the second thing you've got to be. Verse 5. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Second thing, the servant of the Lord is an athlete, striving for the crown, striving for the gold, striving for the prize. The object of the athlete is to win the prize. Isn't that your goal? <laughs> Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. 
unless you're weird, I said this, I think, recently, unless you're weird, you don't play sports to lose, you know? I just can't wait to lose. No, you get in there and you want to win. I mean, at least you want to win. You might not win. You know, my daughter had a basketball game today. I didn't let her go out the house and say, I'll catch up with you in a little bit, honey. Can't wait to see you get your butt kicked. No, that's not what it's about. It's like, you know, we want you to try to win the game. And, and if you're an athlete, you're trying to win. You're trying to win the race, perhaps. But if you want the crown, you got to follow some rules. You got to strive lawfully. You can't just do it however way you want. I'll give you a story. My former boss had a son who went to Manalapan High School. His name was Bobby Andrews. Uh, has all the records over there from Manalapan. He's like a, he was an Olympic runner. Uh, and a few years ago, he made, I think, not the previous Olympics, I think the one before that. He made, I think, the 1,500 meter um, in the Olympics. I mean, the real deal. And his father, who was my boss, went to the Olympics with him. Big running family. They run like crazy. I think they run in their sleep. But, um, and he made it to the semifinal heat of I think the 1500 meter of the Olympics, the real deal. And he got bumped and he stepped out of his lane and he got DQ'd. And he fought it and they appealed it to the IOC and they did all this stuff. They said, ah, you you stepped out of your lane, DQ'd. Yeah, but he was DQ'd because he stepped out of his lane. And that's a great lesson for a Christian. You have this prize waiting for you, but if you step, if you get turned aside, if you step out of your lane, you can plead your case, but you got to strive lawfully. you got to do it the way God did, said to do it and stay in your lane and run the race that God gave you to run. Don't be like that. Next thing you got to be is verse 6. So you're a soldier. You're an athlete in verse 6. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Finally, the man of God is supposed to be a husbandman. You're supposed to be like that farmer, so to speak, cultivating growth in others. Right? Your goal is to try to see people grow, not see people genuflect to you. See people become better than you are, not look up to you all the time. Try to make the next person better than you are. That takes swallowing some pride, right? I like to see guys here preach a message better. You already do. Preach messages better than I do. Trust God better than I do. Go do a work for God that's far better than we could ever do. That shouldn't make you be like, oh, envious. That should be like, fantastic. I want to see my children do better than me, right? Don't you want to see another Christian that you raised up in the faith do better than you? That's progress, right? What does the husband have to do? He has to labor. Real growth takes those ugly four-letter words that Christians don't like. Time and work. And the last one ends in K, like a real curse word, right? Time and work. Pastor Dean told me, brother... Years ago, he said, brother, if you're going to do that work for God, it's going to be slow and it's going to be hard. And he's right. Man, had a lot of wisdom. He is right. It's slow going and it's hard going. It's like chipping things out of stone sometimes. But that's, you got to labor. And then secondly, you must first be partaker of the fruits. You can't give others what you don't have yourself, Timothy. You can't tell somebody to trust God if you don't trust God. You can't tell somebody to love the Bible if you don't love the Bible. you got to light yourself on fire and have people come to watch you burn, as John Wesley put it. And so that's what he's saying there. Let's go to verse 15. So that's three pictures of the man of God. Two fi- Amen. 2.15. Famous verse. Changed in most modern versions. 
If you're looking at a different verse, you might have the wrong Bible in front of you. Paul is going to describe the workman that we should be. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Please notice, number one, the action for the workman. Study, which is a weariness of the flesh, makes you tired, makes you nod off sometimes, makes you just, ugh. You could do construction all day. Sometimes it's easier to do that than have to study for four or five hours. Just you get all twisted and wound up and your you body gets, you know, stressed out because you're searching and digging and looking and thinking and praying, you know. He says, study. That's changed in many new versions. I'll show you some of them. Holman Christian Standard Bible. New American Standard Bible. New King James Bible, which is not a King James Bible at all, says, be diligent to present yourself. That's not study. <laughs> I'm a teacher. I know what it means to study. To be diligent to present yourself, that just means show up. <laughs> I'm in class. <laughs> you can show up to class and still fail the test if you didn't study. How about this? The ESV, the NIV, the RSV, do your best. <laughs> M-O-U-S-E. Right? You just, you know, it's like, get over here, buddy. Just do your best, you little knucklehead. I love you. Now get out there and just do whatever you want for God. No, he says, he says to study. He told you to study. Find out what God said. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So don't just do your best. Do what God said. And then the last one, this, this is the New Century version. Make every effort. <laughs> you know, climb every mountain and make every effort. So that's the action for the workman. Study. Notice the approval of the workman. Study to show thyself approved unto God. We're supposed to be seeking an approval, not from you, from God. Amen. You know, I shouldn't say this on the air, but we get, we get, we get observed as teachers in, uh, in, in New York City system. I haven't read an observation in like five or ten years. I just take it, I put it in a folder somewhere, I don't even read them. Oh, highly effective, great, that's fantastic. I don't read it because it's, that's, you know who you really, I try to put, I do my lessons as if I'm trying to do them for the Lord. I'm trying to strive for a higher standard, right? And if you're really serving God, you're not doing it for the approval of a man down here or somebody, oh, that was a good message. I appreciate everybody that says that, but you're trying to do it because, hey, Lord, is this what you want? Is this what God wants? Is this what you're asking? I'm trying to be approved unto you. Notice also the admonition to the workmen. Don't end up ashamed. There's a little bit of carrot and stick. Don't end up ashamed. You know, if a guy's building a wall or building a building or building a house, if he doesn't do it according to code, that thing might fall. That wall might collapse. That, that, that you know, header might, that wasn't put in right, might, the wall might sink. Something might go wrong. You don't want to see that. If you were the contractor on a job that you took a wall down, was supposed to put the header in right to support the beams, and you didn't do it right, and the stuff starts sagging, guess who looks bad? You're ashamed. You look like a fool. And at the judgment seat of Christ, some of us might be ashamed because what we've built wasn't according to code. And then lastly, the application by the workman, rightly dividing the word. That's how you do it. He says, divide the word of truth. Understand the differences. I've said it before. I'll say it again. From my earliest days of behavioral psychology, children learn by differences. This is a circle, this is a square, this is a cat, this is a dog. 
This is a boy. This is a girl. You learn by differences. And something happens when the mind can separate things and learn by differences. That's just psychology 101. Guess what? God's children learn the Bible by differences. This is salvation in the Old Testament. This is salvation in the New Testament. This is the Jew. This is the church. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of God. And you see those differences and you start to learn your Bible. Instead of just squishing it all together and saying, it's all by God, I just love it all. No, I I love it all too, but you got to separate it and rightly divide it. All right, keep going. Verse 16. In verse 16 to 20, the Lord likens the church to a house with all kinds of vessels. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. See verse 20, not every believer, not every vessel, right? We possess the Holy Spirit. We have God living inside of us. We're a vessel. Not every vessel will bring Jesus Christ honor. That's what he says. That's Bible. He says, not every person that's saved is going to bring God honor. Verse 19, he says, nevertheless, the foundation of God stand ashore, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Here's what he's saying to Timothy. It's not your job, pastor, to be a fruit inspector. My job is not to sit here and just be measuring all your fruit. He doesn't look saved. She does. What does look saved look like? Does it? Do you, can you tell me that? Right? What is a saved person supposed to be doing? Well, I know we've got our lists. Well, if somebody was saved, they would really? Like Demas, who forsook Paul after being in the ministry? Like Titus? who got a letter written to him in the Bible and departed to Dalmatia? Tell me what a saved person looks like. I don't know. I can't see anybody's heart. I could judge some of the fruit of your lips, and by their fruits you shall know them. I know, but I'm not supposed to be a fruit inspector. God knows the ones that are His. That's what He's saying. God knows the ones that are His. God knows who's saved. You know what He says in 21? If a man... Therefore, purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful us, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He says, Timothy, stop wasting your time with people that don't care about God. Start with yourself, with the man in the mirror. Start with the man in the mirror and help the saints who want to get clean. That's what he's saying. Find those people that want to purge themselves and get them ready and flee your own lust and follow people and hang out with people that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Doesn't mean you kick people out of the church, but listen, there's so many people that need help. I can't waste my time chasing that numbskull that doesn't want to come to church anymore, that you know doesn't want to follow the Bible. I mean, I'll do my best. I'll reach out once in a while, but there's so much in front of you. I can't keep looking behind me. You got to keep going forward, Timothy. So find the people that want to serve God and pour your life into them, and God will take care of the rest. Chapter 3. The Lord wants, look at verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. 
The Lord wants the pastor to know about the perilous times to come. And we think, oh, that's today. Elon Musk got his first Neuralink chip implanted. The kids, the kids, the kids. That's, he's not talking about the news. He's talking about you people. He's talking to a pastor about church people. That's who a pa- Pastors don't have to worry about the news. Right? We're not worried about what's on CNN or Fox. He says, you're going to deal with church people and it's going to be perilous. 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 You say, what makes it perilous? Well, if you, re- if you read verses 2 to 5, you'll see 18 perils listed. That's 6 plus 6 plus 6. Antichrist. People are going to be anti-Christ. When God's people are anti-Christ, you've got some perilous times. You know where it starts? Verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's where it starts. <laughs> the root of the problem is not all the stuff we see on the news. It's not, you know, uh, it's not uh, this theory being taught or that theory being taught or this phenomenon or that political party. You know what the problem is? The problem is we love ourselves too stinking much. We love ourselves more than we love God. That's the root of all the problems. That's where it starts. Isn't that accurate? We would say, oh, it's the economy. It's the coming, you know, uh, digital currencies. It's the, it's the rise of this. It's the Satanism over here. Oh, they put this statue up over here of Satan. That's it. That's it. That must be the problem. Yeah, that's a symptom. That's not the cause. The cause of the problem of the world being in the toilet is because the church is on the seat. The church is in our... See, we're not following the world. The world's following us. We're the moon. We affect the tides. And the fact that the church is sitting on the toilet seat is why the church, why the world is in the toilet. Because if we were more burning and shining lights, guess what? They wouldn't curse around you. They wouldn't be filthy around you. There was a time when people walked around, men of God walked around, and politicians trembled. People were afraid to offend, you know, the, the local man of God or the person. There are no Christians. Who are the Christians like that anymore? Who love righteousness so much that they're burning and shining lights like John the Baptist that make people tremble, that make leaders tremble, that make people just get convicted just by being in them. Guys like Finney and Sam Jones used to walk into a town and preach a meeting and the bars would close. The bars would close. Now you're lucky they don't throw a bottle at you while the Christians are telling you to shut up about that stuff, right? It's a different world we're living in. It's a different world. Where is that? I don't know where that is. I wish we got to get some of that back. That was, that, that's good stuff. But we love ourselves so much. How accurate is the Bible? The Bible knew that the last days would be the generation of the selfie. That's the perilous time. With a, with a, with a culture of the selfie. Let me, quick, let me just get a selfie. Let me get a selfie stick. Let me get a selfie apparatus. You know, it's self, self, self. We're all looking at ourselves. And that's what he said was the root of all the problems of the perilous times to come. Verse 9 to 11. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine. One, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, nine things. Paul lists nine things Timothy knew about him. Nine is the number of fruitfulness. That's, you want to find a good person to follow? Follow, follow somebody like Paul, and you can really be fruitful. <coughs> Verse 14, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, 
You know what he's saying there? When everybody around you is falling, when evil men and seduces wax worse and worse, when you think the government's going to hell, you think the culture's going to hell, you think everything's going to hell, hey, just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Keep doing what you learned a Christian is supposed to do. That's all you got to do. You just have to keep going. That's all. Let God sort everything out. Don't get freaked out. Just keep going. Continue thou. Verse number 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, Timothy had a broken home. We studied that last week. He had a broken home. But he ended up blessed because of the book. Timothy, you had a bad start, Timothy. You had a bad daddy. You had a broken home. You had a rough start. And you know, if we trace it all back, we all got something that we, we were all a victim of something. We all got some baggage. We all got some scar. We all got something that could, we could say could hold us back. Timothy could cry in his beer. I had no dad. My dad was a lost man. My mom and my grandmother had to raise me. He could cry in his beer like that. But you know what he did? He took the scriptures and he went on for God. And he's a great example. A broken home, but ended up blessed because of the book. You know, in chapter 1, verse 5, Timothy, uh, the book mentions the godly women in his life. Lois and Ianisi, right? Mentions his mother, mentions his grandmother. You know why? Because God remembers that. God remembers every mom, every grandma that poured their life out to their kids for the glory of God. Oh, God takes note of that. He takes note of that stuff, ladies. Don't despair. And in verse 15, you think Timothy had the originals? That's just, that's just dumb. To think that the Word of God is only in the originals, that's a verse that just laughs at that. He says, you had the Scriptures, Timothy. You think he had the scrolls of Isaiah and Jeremiah? That's nonsense. He had copies. You know what you got in your lap? You got a copy. Amen. Right? And God says, that's the Scripture. And then he says in the next verse, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Timothy had the Scriptures. He didn't have the originals, but he had the Scriptures. So do you. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The chapter begins with peril and it ends with profit. It begins with peril because people love themselves and it ends with you could be profitable if you love the Bible. That's a contrast. And then he says in verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This scary chapter ends with the only way to furnish your house, the Word of God. That Bible will put the furnishings on this house. And he does it the way God works. God works from the inside out. Your Bible should say, throughly, not thoroughly. It's throughly. God works through you from the inside out, not thoroughly, right? I could wash a car thoroughly, but I haven't washed the inside yet. I got to wash it from the inside out, throughly. You're throughly furnished. God works through you. Puts that book in your heart, and then it comes out your eyes, your mouth, your hands. It changes you. That's the charge. Now, last chapter, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Paul's final, this is the last words, man. This is it. They're getting ready to kill him. His final, he gave him like a, something like a dozen charges or something like that in the first two books. His, his last charge to the pastor is just preach. 
Preach. That's all you can do is preach. Just declare what God said. That's all you can do. You can't outsmart people. You can't reason with people. Just preach the word. The Bible will take care of itself. The Bible will accomplish. It won't return unto God void. Notice verse 1. God's going to judge everybody. He says, I'll judge the saved that is appearing. I'll judge the lost at his advent. At his appearing, I judge the saved, the quick. I'll judge the dead at his kingdom. At the end of that millennial reign, he'll judge the dead at the white throne. God will judge them all. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. You know what the sign of the last days is? A lot of teachers, but very few preachers. Probably Mel Sabaka might have been the last of that Philadelphian age of preachers that could just, as Bob Alexander would say, peel the paint off the walls as they were preaching. We have a lot of guys giving seminars and talks about creation, about marriage, about stewardship, about, you know, dynamic tension, about how to be the best you for God. But we don't have guys, and I'm in that boat too, we don't have guys that could just open up the Bible, let it rip, and like declare what God said and just bring you unto conviction and peel the proverbial paint off the walls and hold you in rapt attention as you tremble under the Word of God. We don't have a lot of that. I don't think if you go to the Christian bookstore, if they even exist anymore, right? There used to be that one in Woodbridge, right? The Jesus bookstore. I think they turned that into a lotto place or something like that now. But you know what? Um, What is it now? It's still there? Amen. All right. Hold the fort. All right. But you know what? What are they selling? You know, this guy's telling me about replacement theology. This one over here is like half an atheist. This one over here is not sure if God is real. And they're all in the Christian bookstore. Teaching. There's lots of teachers out there. Where are the preachers? The ones that say, thus saith the Lord, and declare God's truth. And they teach, but they preach and declare with authority. Jesus spoke as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Verse number six. For I am now ready to be offered. Isn't it interesting, I'll just throw this out for consumption, that Paul knew when he would see the Lord. Will the church know? Paul said his life was a pattern. Paul knew when he was going to see Jesus. Maybe we'll know when our time is approaching that we're going to see Jesus. And I don't mean it in a fuzzy way, like, oh, Jesus is coming. I mean, no, maybe like this season he's coming, right? Verse 6, keep going. And the time of my departure is at hand. Again, death is the departure of the soul from the body. It speaks of Rachel in Genesis 35, 18. It says of Rachel, and it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died. That's how God defines death. It's the soul leaving the body. Paul would say in Philippians 1, I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. What is he saying? I wish I could just die and be with Jesus. I want my soul to leave this body and be in the presence of God. Verse number seven, here is Paul's valedictory farewell. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also, that love is appearing. I bet you when Paul wrote this and read this back, some guard was sitting there by the cell laughing. Because you know what Paul looked like to the world? What a loser. 
You're a man of repute. You're a man that was high in his religion. You're a man that had social respect and sway with the masses. And you gave that all up to die like a loser, alone, blind, in a jail cell with nobody coming to see you but that rat nibbling on your old cheese? You look like a loser, Paul. Paul says, no, I'm a winner. You know what you look like to the world? You look like the biggest bunch of losers that ever walked the face of the earth. You're sitting here on a Thursday night in a crowded library with this loudmouth Italian with pens and papers listening to a yell at you about a Bible written 400 years ago. You know what you look like? A loser. That's what the world thinks of you. You know what God says? I got some winners in here. Amen. I don't mean that sarcastically because I do have some winners in here. But, but there's winners here. Like we win. Paul says, I won. It looks like I lost, Timothy. They're going to cut my head off. They're going to kill me. But I've won. I've won. We have won. We have won. Don't get discouraged, Timothy. Don't get discouraged. You win. I'm on the winning side. Yes, I'm on the winning side, as the song says. Right? Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. So let me give you two big ideas. Go back to chapter 1. I'll do this very fast. Go back to chapter 1. Two big and short ideas from the book of 2 Timothy. The first big idea, the ministry is people. I quote Pastor Mel all the time because he's a quotable guy. <laughs> you know, I know what side of my bread the butter comes on. You know, he, he's just, he's a guy you want to listen to guys like that. And uh, he would say over and over again, the ministry's people. And here at the end of Paul's life, he mentions 23 individuals in his last letter. And he doesn't say a lot about himself. It's like he got swallowed up with others. Remember, uh, what's his name? William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. He's at the end of his life, sends that one-word telegram to rally his people, others. It's others. It's Jesus, then others, then yourself. That's the way it's got to be. Look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Some of those others, some of those names that he names are commended. 1.5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. That's a commendation. To get your name in the Bible for believing God? Wow. For you, Mama, from that broken home, raising up this boy Timothy, that's a pastor of the greatest church in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus? Wow. You know, I bet you Timothy wrote his mom, Mom, you're in the Bible. You know, Paul mentioned you in his letter. What a commendation. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. Salute Prisca and Aquila. Oh, that couple. Amen. That couple that he always talked about, those comrade-in-arms that always seemed to work with him and help him. I, I mean, you, you read a little bit about what they did, but, man, he loved them so much, he's at his last pen strokes. And he says, oh, salute Prisca and Aquila. That's a commendation from God Almighty to these brethren who served. So some of the people that are named are commended because the ministry is people. But go to chapter 4, look at verse 14. Some of those names are called out because the ministry is good people and bad people. See 4.14? He says, uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. Names his name. Why do you have to name his name? Because God names the name. I've had to name names. I don't like it, but sometimes you've got to name the name because God told you to name the name. Mark them which cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. 
Mark them, name them, point them out so the sheep don't get suckered. And if I name a name up here, I know some, some you know, YouTube bot, some YouTube person that doesn't have a church that sits on YouTube and wants to like make fun of people, they may go crazy. Oh, you name it. Yeah, because there's some names to watch out for. If you come across a name and give me the name, I'll tell you whether that's a good name or not. Because not everybody's a good person out there. They might have an ulterior motive or a bad doctrine that'll just be like leaven and leaven the whole lump. He named, uh, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 15. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. <laughs> How about being those guys? They're getting called out. Chapter 4, verse 10. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 10. Demas hath forsaken me. Right? He's calling people out. He mentions Hymenaeus in this book as well. Right? Just, he just, sometimes you've got to name names that are not doing the right thing. Look at chapter 4, look at verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable for me to me for the ministry. You remember the last time he talked about John Mark? He didn't want anything to do with him. He separated fellowship with Barnabas over John Mark. They were getting ready for that second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to take Mark. And Paul says, no, 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 we're not taking Mark. Mark abandoned us. Acts chapter 13, Mark departed, to, Mark departed to work. He left. I'm not taking him. And that contention was so high that Barnabas and Paul separated over him. Now at the end of his life, he says, can you bring Mark? Amen. Mark got some things right. Probably Paul got some things right. God has second chances. Because why? Because the ministry's people. Notice the reconciliation. John Mark, sometimes we're just done with people. I'm done with this one. Well, if they make it right and you make it right, why can't you reconcile? He reconciled with John Mark. Imagine somebody went out of this place and just raised Cain and did something terrible. And Maybe they can't come back to this church, but they can still come back to fellowship and with you. you know? I understand the logistics of things sometimes, but that's a great example that sometimes you've got to be willing to forgive. Paul was willing to forgive even a man that wounded him and abandoned the ministry because the ministry's people. The ministry's not this machine that just rides on the backs of people. The ministry is the people. So even though John Mark departed the ministry, John Mark is the ministry. So if John Mark is willing to get back with God and serve again, he says, yeah, bring John Mark. I'd like to see him before I die. What a blessing. What a blessing that, that, you, know, that you sometimes could have stepped out on God and given up on God, but then you make things right. And the Holy Spirit says, come on, get close again. I'd like to see you again. What a God we serve. What a God we have. And then lastly, verse 9, he says, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. That's to Timothy. That's to his son in the faith. He says it again in 21. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Come before it's too late, Timothy. You notice the last thing on Paul's mind is a young man in the ministry? Of all the things Paul could think about, the last thing he's thinking about is his young protege, his young comrade-at-arms, his young son in the faith, Timothy. Oh, to be like him. <laughs> oh, to have that heart. Isn't that what Jesus Christ was like on the cross? He's dying on the cross. He said, hey, John, take care of my mother. Take care of Mary. He's thinking about people from the cross, right? That's the heart of your Savior, thinking about people, people, people. And there is Paul at the end of his life. And what's on his mind? People. Timothy, I wanted to see you. I long to see you. That's the first big idea. Here's the second big idea, and this is only one verse. 2 Timothy 1.6, our last verse of the night. 2 Timothy 1.6. 
He says, Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Second big idea for all of you that want to serve the Lord, don't ever forget who you are in Jesus Christ. He says, remember who you are, Timothy. Remember the gift of God that's been given to you. And that gift of God is not the salvation. He's not talking about salvation there. That's a different gift of God. He's talking about a gift for service. In the book of Numbers, the Levites were given as a gift. They were called to serve. And God says, I've given you the Levites as a gift. The gift of God that Timothy's being talked about there is the fact that God had called him into the ministry and wanted to use him to bless people and minister to others. That's the gift that's been given him. Right? He says, with the, with, the, with the putting on of my hands, hey, when we lay hands on somebody for service, we're not imparting salvation to them. They had that already. But when you get ordained to the ministry, guess what? A bunch of guys come around you, your pastors, and they, they lay hands on you to signify the passing of just trust and responsibility to another person. So he says, Timothy, you have a gift. You have a call on your life. Don't ever forget that. And you all have a call on your life. If you're saved, you're all just, you've got a crimson cord that's tying you to Jesus Christ. You've got a call in your life. Don't ever forget that. Stir it up. Remember it. I've used this example before, but I think about the Lion King, right? When, uh, what is it, Mufasa, right? He's, not Mufasa, Simba. He's run away from his father. Disney's got some great illustrations if you take it all the wicked stuff, right? But uh, he's run away from his father and he's lost in the wilderness. He looks into the water and he sees the reflection of his father. And his father says to him, remember who you are. You are my son. You're the son of the king. Amen? Amen. And you know when you look into the water of this book, you know the Holy Spirit wants to tell you? Remember who you are. You're the son of a king. You're the son of the king. You've been called to serve. And like Simba went back and he took up that mantle and he became the king that his father wanted him to be. Hey, look into that book. Stir up your mind and get back in the fight and become the, the Christian the leader that God called you to be. He says, stir it up. You know, Grandma's got the sauce on there. You got to stir it. You didn't stir the sauce. You got to stir the sauce. If you don't stir the sauce, all the good stuff is in there, but it needs stirring. And everything you need to get to serve God, it's in there. It needs stirring. The Bible says, stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. When you remember, you stir it up. So he says, Timothy, don't forget, don't forget, so that you get stirred to become all that God wants you to be. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you tonight, Lord. I pray something that was said could just uh, make sense. Thank you for the young man nearby, Lord, that works here, that called on your name, Lord. I pray you direct him and, and, and just, just order his steps, Lord, that new babe in Christ, protect him from the evil that tries to steal the word of God out of his mind and heart tonight. And we pray, Lord, you just challenge us all whether, you know, we preach or whatever we do, Lord, let us just remember who we are and want to just fulfill that royal calling, Lord, that you have on our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.